Welcome to Family Office Connections. I'm Edward Marshall, Managing Director at Boston Private. Today, we've gathered a group of experts in the philanthropic advisory space to talk about their experiences of working with family offices. We'll discuss the state of the philanthropy industry today uh, during the pandemic, and we'll also look at what the industry might look like in a post-pandemic world. We'll we'll close and kind of bring everything together with some best practices in uh, philanthropy strategy and execution uh, that families can consider today. Uh, let's get underway with some brief introductions. First, I'm joined by Karen Yanis, uh, Principal of Crowland Consulting. Karen, uh, give us a quick snapshot of your background. Ed, it's good to be here. Thank you for the invitation. I've built and run foundations for Oprah Winfrey and for the Crown family here in Chicago. My firm, Crowland Consulting, guides families, celebrities, businesses, and athletes to develop meaningful philanthropic practices that strengthen internal relationships and culture. Over the years, years, I've spent extensive time in Africa and the Middle East and in the Mid-South in the United States on economic development projects, public-private partnerships, capital projects, and long-term post-disaster rebuilding. Um, I'm, a, I'm a board of advisor at the Lilly Family School of Philanthropy. Um, I'm on the board of the Women's Philanthropy Institute, an adjunct at Johns Hopkins in their Sports Impact Certificate Program, and a regular speaker at Ch University of Chicago's Booth School and Northwestern. Um, I speak at estate planning conferences and enjoy coaching, mentoring, and working alongside people who believe they can make the world a better place. Thanks, Karen. Our other guest today is John LaFleur, a managing director at Strategic Philanthropy. John, give us a thumbnail of your background, if you wouldn't mind. Uh, sure. Actually, uh, I came out of a family office background. I was worked with one family uh, for 21 years between the family business, which was sold and then funded a very large uh, foundation. Uh, I was executive director there for eight years and then um, went on to work for um, a number of other uh, clients and nonprofits leading up to uh, my most recent five years as a managing director of strategic philanthropy, where I um, do uh, client-facing engagements as well as uh, working with advisors like yourself uh, to help uh, identify clients, uh, family offices, individuals, donors who uh, who need help uh, with strategy and execution around their philanthropy. Thanks, John. So uh, let's let's dive into the questions. Uh, so philanthropic funding uh, worldwide is certainly uh, on the move on the on the back end of this uh, pandemic. I mean, according to data from Candid, you know, over ten billion dollars globally, six billion dollars of uh, money flows from just the United States. I mean, Jack Dorsey uh, famously has pledged a billion dollars to COVID-19 efforts. Uh, these all sound like large numbers, John. What do they mean in the context uh, of the devastation of this virus and how effective do you think it'll be and, and what, uh, how much more is going to be needed? Um, I think you, you probably asked the hardest question in the world. And if I knew the answer, I, I'm not sure I'd be on this. Uh, I think I'd be... Uh, I'd be elsewhere trying to figure out how to, how to implement it. Um, it's it's a good, it's a great question. I just I don't know that anyone really knows uh, until this this plays out. I think we're all everything's in a state of flux, um, and it's really a lot of as far as it affects just you know the nonprofit world, uh, you know that Karen and I work in. Um, it it's really to be determined. We're, we're going to have to see how people are able to pivot 
and uh, adjust the execution of their missions and also take a look at how well prepared they were for something like this. But, you know, just there's, there's so much more uh, to be learned. And, uh, you know, frankly, there's, you know, there's a lot more philanthropic capital available, which we, you know, we can talk about later. Great, thanks. So, Karen, one of the areas that you cover, especially since you've done some work uh, in philanthropic advisory globally, is you talk about the stages of a, uh, a disaster response. How do you see philanthropists and charitable organization responding today using uh, those stages that you, you, you have uh, uh, discussed before? No, th thanks, Eddie. Um, I really appreciate your starting this conversation because I think it's such an important conversation. And and thank you to Boston Private for sponsoring it. Um, there, there are four stages of disaster response in my mind, and I've done a, a significant amount of work in disaster response, both with Oprah and then with the, the Crown family, who I worked with after, after Oprah. Um, the first stage is relief. So immediately after a disaster, you need to make sure that the people who've been affected have their basic needs met. So that bottom tier of Maslow's hierarchy of needs, right, that they have food, that they have shelter, that they have security and safety. And we're still in the process of figuring that out with this disaster. The second phase is recovery. And largely recovery has to do with mental health. It has to do with the emotional state of, of people and and helping protect fragile psyches and helping get people up and working so that they can start that third stage, which is rebuilding. And we know that when there's a disaster, we don't rebuild the same way. We don't rebuild back what we had before. It's not even just building back better. It's building back in an innovative way and leads to this concept of resilience or the fourth, fourth stage, which allows us to ensure that we're going to be strong for the next the next time this happens. And there's a lot of great data on that. So um, so when I was working with Oprah, um, right after Hurricane Katrina hit, our team started going south, and we ended up looking all over. The landscape looked like the moon. Everything was flat. And we ended up in East Biloxi, Mississippi, just a few days after the storm hit. And there was a sign of hope in East Biloxi. Um, East Biloxi was home to workers in, in, um, in the casinos, so very close to the casinos in in um, Mississippi and home to a lot of Vietnamese fishermen, a lot of African-Americans who didn't actually have, um, have the deeds to their homes. So there was a plethora of issues. And there was this incredibly dynamic city councilman who had been fighting for workers' rights with the casino, um, with the casinos for a number of years. And he started pulling people together. His name was Bill Stallworth. And he brought in partners. The, um, Architecture for Humanity, Enterprise Community Partners, and they did case management and started to rebuild in a community way that we, we didn't see anywhere else. Um, they put a number of people back in homes, and it was really something remarkable to see. So we have to figure out how that's going to happen after this disaster and where those points of strength are, where people are really working in, deeply inside communities to create change. Do you see any of that going on right now, Karen, or any maybe some early shoots of that going on in, in philanthropic and charitable activity? Absolutely. Um, there's a lot of people thinking about mental health and the stability of the community. So that's that second stage. There's also a, a pretty significant amount of thinking about innovation in the future and the shifts that we're going, we're going to see. Um, I'll talk a little bit more about that later, but um, I think this is a time to innovate. I was um, I was listening just the other day to um, to a conversation with John Chambers, um, who you know was the was the um, 
the CEO of Cisco Systems. And he says, um, as we come out of this, many of you will say, let's get back to normal. But he said, this is a period of disruption, either disrupt or get disrupted. And it's rethinking the way the systems that we had and thinking about what we need to contextualize for the future that many, many philanthropists are looking at. Uh, thanks, Garrett. John, in terms of education, I mean, children across the, the United States and, you know, across the world have also been deeply affected by uh, COVID-19 from an educational perspective. You know, do you see uh, charitable organizations looking at this field? Who's doing a good job? And where, where do you see some good impact uh, being made? So, um, really, really difficult, uh, difficult issue to address, right? I mean, um, most, uh, while there, you know, there's been disasters that we've dealt with in the past, I mean, this one's so much different in its nature where parents are home and many of them expected to work. And at the same time, um, you know, kids are not allowed to be social creatures like that, like they, they normally are. So, uh, I think, you know, the solutions and the responses to it are, you know, kind of, you know, a spectrum. Um, not every, um, let's, you know, just to be fair, not every um, school district, not every teacher um, was prepared to respond to, you know, to educating at home. Um, you know, I can share personally that, you know, I think our, you know, my son's fifth grade teacher's done a great job. Um, and my son's kindergarten teacher has just, you know, um, struggled a bit, but she's, you know, she's doing her best and, and we're trying to be supportive. And if you extrapolate that to just all the kids in the country and think about, you know, what everyone's going through, um, I think it's really um, time for, you know, for nonprofits to be looking at, you know, what they can do to sort of, uh, to step it up. Um, I can't really say who's doing the best work. I haven't, we haven't seen, um, we haven't seen that much movement in um, in the education partners that we work with. A lot of them are, are in the higher education, which is a, a whole other issue. But I think a lot of what what folks need to be focused on is is really just uh, children's mental health um, and their uh, you know their ability to you know, stay inside for such long periods of time. It's extremely difficult. I know a lot of parents are sort of defaulting to the online, um, you know, augmented screen time allowance, but, you know, that presents a whole other set of problems in itself with regards to, um, uh, you know, making sure that they're looking at the right materials, um, making sure that they're not, you know, getting, you know, there's, there's been some recent articles about, you know, online predators uh, using this lockdown time to exploit, you know, um, kids being on the online more often. Um, so, I mean, it's a, it's a, it's a, an incredible challenge. I mean, it's one of many that, um, that we're facing. And I think, um, you know, it's just something that, you know, if you are working with a nonprofit group that is addressing it, um, being able to provide them additional funding to, you know, continue and maybe increase their services in the area, provide, um, you know, provide activities for kids. Uh, then, you know, it's I, one of the groups that I'm working with um, that used to hold in-person art classes is now providing brown bag uh, art activities for kids. 
So, uh, and actually, it's they're delivering them. You know, my my boys and I are delivering them ourselves to uh, to different homes around the city, where it's some amount of you know painting, uh, colored pencils, crayons, uh, activity sheets to do. I mean, keeping your kids focused during this um, and trying to maintain your sanity is is a challenge for 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 everyone. I think. Uh, that's an interesting point in terms of retooling uh, towards that. Karen, uh, you know, certainly nonprofits are not immune to the effects of the closures and the state of homeowners that we've seen across the country. Have you uh, seen any uh, nonprofits, nonprofits that have done a good job of retooling um, uh, and to, to survive and not only survive, but also thrive uh, in this pandemic environment? Yes, thanks, Ed. I, I'm going to talk about, about the sector, but before I do, I just want to go back to that question that John just answered. I think this is going to define this generation. Right? We're looking at a generation of kids that's coming up in a very different way, and it's going to be fascinating to see how they incorporate this. Um, and just to build on his, on his thoughts about education, there are kids who don't have access to broadband. There are kids that don't have access to, um, to iPads or tablets where they can actually do the work. I and mean, there's been all kinds of stories about children going and sitting on school grounds so that they can access the, the Wi-Fi from the school. So many, many nonprofits are working in this space to really build up the bench strength in, um, in underserved and under-resourced communities so that kids, have, kids that are at least on a level playing field in terms of what they have to work with. Um, and we know that there are so many, um, there are so many social deficits anyway in communities where children aren't being read to um, at the same rate across across school districts. So, so that said, you had asked a question about the sector, and I think it's a really important question because things are shifting really dramatically. Um, I've got some data from the Urban Institute from 2016. There's over a million um, and a half, a million, almost a million point six registered mission-based organizations in, this, in the United States. And that, that in, back in 2016, with 10% of the workforce, five and a half percent of GDP. So that's pretty significant when we think about the number of people who are working. It was a significant expansion um, of over 10% in the years between 2020, um, 2005 when Hurricane Katrina hit and 2015, in part in response to both 9-11 and Hurricane Katrina because people really wanted to do something. I think half of the, the, the people in the United States actually donated post 9-11. Um, and 25% of Americans volunteered in that period of time. That's really significant. So how are those volunteer hours going to shift? Um, La Piana Consulting just came out with a survey that I think is really fascinating. Um, they, it's, um, it's an unscientific survey, but they surveyed 750 mission-driven organizations. So that's a pretty significant, um, that's a pretty significant number um, in, in May. And over the last two months, 80% of the, of the mission-driven organizations moved to digital services. So there's, a, there's significance there. And of those organizations, they laid off or furloughed close to 20% of their staff on average, 18%. Half of the respondents expected to continue those reductions in staff, and the majority plan to reduce services. So, um, and a quarter of them are thinking about consolidation. So when we think about this explosion of nonprofit organizations that happened after two significant incidents in the United States, 
we're now looking at a consolidation and hopefully generating more efficiency. So not that the services are going to go away, although many of them probably will, but hopefully they'll be more efficient and more effective as they share back office operations and, and as, they, um, as they consolidate so that they can do what they do really, really well. Um, there's a, a, an interesting movement happening right now. A group of wealthy donors um, has sent a letter to Congress spearheaded by the Wallace Global Fund asking um, the House and the Senate to um, request a 10% minimum annual payout requirement for foundations. And as you probably know, currently there's a 5% minimum, um, minimum payout. So that's doubling the minimum payout. Um, and there's no requirement for donor advised funds. So that they're requesting that there be a 10% payout on donor advised funds as well. I don't know how this is going to go over, but their argument says that it would result in $200 billion in stimulus for nonprofits over three years. So there's some really, there's momentum in thinking about the tools that we, we need in the sector to create this change. It's, an, it's a moment in time when there's really an opportunity to reinvent the sector and think about what works. That's interesting, Karen. Uh, John, to piggyback on, on that, I mean, we, we talk about uh, you know, optimizing staff levels, maybe even consolidating back office operations and some of the changes in potential, uh, you know, legal issues and regulations around there. Are, are there other areas of consolidation or other ways that you think uh, or have seen nonprofits uh, adjust to this, you know, quote, unquote, new normal? Um. So, I mean, consolidation and, and mergers in, in the nonprofit world is, is something that just is ongoing and um, uh, it, it's, you know, it's just part of uh, the nonprofit world that always has been. And, uh, you know, there's, there's a lot of times very good reasons for doing it. Um, I think that, uh, you know, there's going to be you know, whether it's actual physical space or whether it's staffing or whether it's resources. Um, I, I just met with a group in Florida last week, uh, virtually, of course, uh, that had approached a foundation client of ours for um, getting up a, a mobile spay and neuter unit uh, back in order. Uh, it had been dormant for some time. And literally in the time that they approached us to um, to the time that we've been considering the grant, another organization folded and just gave them their fully working lab, for example. So there's there's going to be a lot of groups that are not going to um, to weather this, and I think we're just you know we just have to be open for opportunities for the organizations that we're aware of that we know are doing good work that we want to see. Um, you know, as Karen pointed out, you know, what do they need right now? And then what are they going to need, you know, in the future? Um, so, I mean, that's a lot of our counsel to uh, to clients and the, and the groups that they're working for is, you know, just be on the lookout for, um, you know, opportunity that is just going to make sense uh, and consolidation of staff, location, mission uh, is going to be a big part of it, a bigger part of it than it, than it usually is. So, John, uh, what about the arts, though? I mean, if if, the, if programming is on hold, people can't attend events. I mean, there's only so much that uh, some of these organizations can do from virtual tours to outdoor concerts and things from that nature. You know, what's uh, what's on the horizon for, for the arts? Yeah, great, great and unfortunate question, since that's actually both a personal and professional 
a passion for me. So, so um, you know, the problem, you know, in a nutshell, is that everyone's looking to move online. So, so now all of a sudden you're competing with, you know, you have dance groups competing with museums and, uh, you know, uh, music groups, and it's just, it's just really going to be. Um, a little bit of a wait and see, you know, who has, who's able to move and, um, you know, maintain and reinvent themselves uh, quickly during this. So again, going back to the arts group that um, I mentioned before, and I just say this because I was literally just delivering these packages last night, um, you know, we're, we're going to, we're moving as much of we can online and then figuring out ways we're thinking ahead is, you know, how are we going to be able to uh, hold outside programs over the summer that might be, um, that might be safe to attend? Um, you know, again, a little bit of a wait and see um, approach with regards to the bigger institutions. Um, that's going to be a problem. I mean, there's ongoing discussions at every major institution uh, where, you know, Organizations are heavily dependent on visitors, um, heavily dependent on events. Um, the whole nonprofit world's just been sort of it's just kneecapped by the inability to hold a lot of these in-person fundraisers. Um, so the arts are just going to be one of many of the of the nonprofits that are just going to have to reinvent themselves, um, probably for a you know reasonable period of time. Um, and again, that goes back to your point about consolidation. Um, definitely going to be some consolidation. Um, we're paying for, you know, gallery and studio space uh, through, the, through the group that I was just referring to that we can't use. Um, it's just sitting there empty. And if it wasn't for, um, you know, the, the SPA disaster loan, the PPP, uh, that we were able and fortunate enough to get both for, um, uh, I'm not sure that we would um, just hibernate for a while. So we're able to you know, get through the end of the year and we're just looking into 2021 to see how we come out of it. And I think that's going to be the case for a lot of organizations. So, uh, Karen, in, in terms of uh, impact investing, you know, take a little tangent from philanthropy and what's going on there. Do you see things happening in that field? That, uh, in terms of changes to adapt to COVID-19 uh, or anything that you think on that will be over the horizon uh, for impact investing in general? Yeah, and I, I think that um, I, I think that there's an acceleration that we're going to see happening. You know, there's been a movement towards sustainable investing for the last, say, 10 years. Um, and there's also been this sense of how do you define impact investing? So on the, on the one hand, um, microloans, um, program-related investments, um, low interest, low interest loans um, on on the real estate side, um, all the way to market rate um, market rate investment from an from a philanthropic endowment or from a, from a family's um, or from a family's investment office. So there's this this kind of broad swath of what impact investing really means. Um, we're also seeing a variety of assets being brought to the table, in in, including human capital. So the idea of market transformation transformation and shareholder activism, I think, is, is taking on a larger, um, a larger role, and we're going to see that as, um, as this whole thing plays out. Um, there's a number of trends that you probably see as an advisor as well. Um, talk going back to 
the program side and John's first example of his kids' school, I think people are going to be doing more investing in ed tech and, um, and in other technologies that are going to help move the, the needle on getting us to the place where we're communicating, is, um, where we're teaching, we're communicating, we're providing services that are super helpful. Um, and so I, I, hope, I hope that's helpful, but I do think this is accelerating um, sustainable investing, move towards sustainable investing. Thanks, Karen. Uh, and then to, to cap off the discussion on, on, you know, philanthropy during COVID, I mean, both of you have worked with numerous family offices over the years and have experience of working through different crises. I and mean, Karen, you talked about one earlier. Are there lessons learned that we uh, could have captured from previous, uh, uh, you know, catastrophes and, and lessons learned that we're already, we can engage with what, what is happening now uh, that you know family offices and philanthropists can capture and actually use uh, to their benefit for the organizations and uh, causes that they support. So um, I, I'm happy to go if that's uh, yeah. Go ahead. Yeah. Then. Um, yep. Sure. Um, so I think what I've seen is that. A lot of the folks that, that I've worked with over the years, um, you know, really wanted to stay the course. Um, it's not that they weren't being responsive, um, but, you know, they have a finite amount of philanthropic capital to deploy. They have missions and organizations that they want to support. And um, going over sort of the best practices that Karen referred to earlier, um, that's how they've chosen to deploy them. And um, they've, they've made sure that the organizations uh, have what they need in the current crisis and then that they have a plan to move forward and uh, they're going to have the resources and if not uh, a plan to get those resources to execute that path to sustainability. And um, it's not that, it, again, not that they're not being responsive. Even uh, just one of the clients I'm working with now you know, giving money for a very specific uh, position in a uh, social services organization that counsels to students who are trying to, you know, maybe be the first of their generation to go to college. So a very specific grant for personnel to a social service agency. That same social service agency uh, is going to struggle. You know, they're in New York City. They employ four, 400 people. They've got... Um, uh, you know, a payroll of $600,000 every two weeks. Um, yeah, we're going we're, we're gonna to support them with some emergency funds, but it's not going to make all the difference in the world. So my point is, is that, that the, the funder has chosen to say, okay, we know that when they come out of this, this, this piece of the mission, this, this, this position that we've chosen to support, this need is still going to be there. We're going to stay the course. We want to make sure that, they, that we don't lose that person during this time and that um, their funding is paid for. So we're continuing the grant, giving some general operating support, but um, really taking a look at what, you know, I, I think your goals are as a, as a philanthropist and what your goals are in your charitable giving and making sure that whatever the disruption is in this, that you're thinking creatively about how you might deploy it. As, as Karen mentioned a little earlier, like program-related investments at this, at this point in time, you know, um, that's, 
a time for foundations who have capital who may not want to make grants uh, be looking at how can they loan an organization money, perhaps lower the interest rate on their real estate that they're, you know, if they own their real estate, how can they lower that interest rate? Could they give them a 0% loan or a 2% loan if they're paying something higher than that? And that's the same thing as giving them money. So, so thinking about, um, you know, just to sum up, thinking about, you know, how to respond and how to maintain and then how to survive is really what, you know, I've seen as like the best way to get through this. Karen, same question to you. I am. Um, I totally agree with John in terms of staying the course. Um, if families have been in, engaged in education, education is a great place to, for them to stay. They're knowledgeable about it. They know the players. They they know the field. They've probably done a landscape scan. They know who else is funding. And thinking about continuing funding, but creating maybe an easier easier access to funding, um, providing emergency funding in the education space or in the environment space or in the um, in the healthcare space, maybe investing more in biotech. And getting families to use their platforms, and every family has a platform, every family has a network of, of people and occupies a space where they can communicate, um, use operating companies that they have access to. So for example, I know one family that, um, that does a lot of agricultural work and the, um, the operation that they have slowed down for a while and they were able to deploy trucks to, um, to take food from food banks into communities that were food deserts um, and provide access to basic needs because it made sense all the way around. So using, you know, using um, your platform and, and access to maybe non-financial um, services and, and partnering with other organizations is really critical in, in these times. The other thing is um, access, to, access to cash. So I have families that that work in, um, in health and human services and in the homeless and mental health space who have gone back to their grantees and said, we're making these small loans for, we're making these small grants right now. What do you need? How can we help you get, get, um, get services to the people who you need? And, they, and, and there's been a really thoughtful and deliberate response to those families. You know, we need um, dividers for the beds that are in our shelter right now. Um, can you help us do that? Or um, we need we need um, gift cards so that people can go into um, into stores and buy food for themselves because they've been cut off. So those are the kinds of things that um, that we're seeing more of. And there was also a call for for a focus on what some foundations are calling trust philanthropy, which is a relaxation of the standard due diligence. But when you've been a partner with a nonprofit organization for a long time, you have a sense of how they're going to perform and it becomes a little bit more intuitive. Thanks, Karen. So let's change gears into thinking about strategy and, and, and certain things on best practices uh, for philanthropy uh, for families and family offices. John, uh, you know, sometimes philanthropy, you know, is a question that families have around, where do, where do I start? There's a lot to think about, you know, whether it's, you know, legacy or mission or revenue streams, giving guidelines, investment guidelines. I mean, how do you work with families uh, to, to make that, uh, to, to, to start that journey? Uh, it's a process and uh, they have to, you know, commit to the process. And, you know, sometimes it's a matter of being, um, be before you can even get started, it's a matter of being ready. Um, so some, you know, some folks uh, are not 
you know, they, they, they have an event that is sort of created the capacity for them to be philanthropic and, uh, you know, they may or may not um, be in a position to, you know, to get started. But, you know, understanding and defining all of those things, um, you know, it's really most successful when, you know, the donors, when the, when the families have, have decided that, okay, now is the time. And, you know, frankly, we, we come across uh, individuals and, and families who, you know, we get started with or we maybe just have introductions with and, and we, we talk and say, you know what, it doesn't sound like you're really going to be in a position to uh, make the commitment to sit down and, and really give thought to what your mission is. Um, you know, we can't sit down and do the, the heavy lifting with you around giving guidelines, investment guidelines, um, and helping you write your legacy if you're not going to if you're not going to really demonstrate that you have the time to think about it, that's the commitment to it is really for us the you know, like the first step. And then after that, you know, it, it is that sort of checklist that you talked about. We sit down and we, you know, we do deep discovery, get to know everyone who's going to be involved uh, in the process, and then um, try to reconcile and pull together, you know, all the different points of view, if it's, if it's going to be, you know, a family affair. I mean, that's just really important that everybody starts off understanding, um, you know, the, everyone, everyone else's expectations. Um, and it can be, uh, you know, it can be a challenge uh, as I'm sure, um, you know, Karen, I'm sure you, you know, you've seen over the years and, and Eddie, just with your, you know, your family office clients, you, you know, that, um, not everyone's in the same space. Not everyone works in the, in the family business. Um, so it's, it, it's really, it's really about commitment and then, um, you know, just taking them through the process of, of, of defining each one of these things. And, um, it can take some time. Uh, it can take, you know, it, it's really best when it's done, you know, over a, a long period of time and over a number of years, it's, it's been really rewarding, uh, to see, you know, families execute all of these things. Um, and that's why I do what I do. But it sounds like the, the process you've described is, you know, both for them working with you, but also with them, uh, internalizing this. I, I don't imagine a lot of people wake up this morning and say, I'm going to be a philanthropist. Yeah, well, it, it really depends on where they're coming from, right? Whether it's, you know, inherited wealth or whether it's wealth that they've earned or, um, yeah, I mean, they, they really kind of have to, you know, it's, it's, when I say it's a process, it's, it's a lot of discovery. Um, you know, it's a lot of like sitting down and making the commitment and we'll sit for, you know, for hours for people to figure out, okay, what is it you really want to get done with the philanthropic capital that you've committed? And that could be, you know, that could be, money, it could be stock, it could be, you know, other non-cash assets like real estate, like art, um, you know, um, but what do you want to achieve? What is it that you're looking to, you know, to do and sort of, you know, skip to the end and then, you know, walk them through the process that it's going to take to get there. So, uh, Karen, related to that question, in terms of families that are getting involved in philanthropy, whether they're, they've done it uh, they're just getting started. They've been doing it for a number of years or generations. How have you worked with families to define success, right, in, in their philanthropic efforts? I can imagine this is a, a, a wide variance uh, between families. And are there some benchmarks or some best practices that you've seen uh, that could be applicable uh, to different philanthropic activities in, in terms of success factors? 
Yeah, and that's such a great question. And um, and I just want to build on what John said because I think he hit all the points, and it is a process. Um, the families that I work with are are all at an inflection point of some kind, and that usually means a couple of years in front of or on the back end of a, of a liquidity event or a life cycle event, a significant life cycle event. Someone's passed, someone's been born into the family, someone's married into the family, um, and all of a sudden the family starts to think, okay, it's time now that we we spend more time thinking about what we can do together. And there's a lot of power internally for families and a lot of, a lot of healing power in philanthropy because once you look outside yourself and start to work together, you become much stronger as a family unit. But as John said, families really need to be ready. And, um, and you probably remember Stephen Covey's, um, Stephen Covey's uh, note to all of us, begin with the end in mind. I think that's, that's what I heard John saying, and that's part of my practice also, is getting families to think about where they want to be and envision it, and then take small steps towards that. Philanthropy is really bespoke, and every family brings its own set of values and dynamics to the table and its own sets of assumptions. But successful families do have a few things in common. They both focus internally and externally, creating their own guidelines. Um, Ultra-high net worth families, high net worth families don't really have any natural predators in, in this. So they can create their own rules. And by working with families to create a set of guidelines and rules about how they operate, they end up operating in a more disciplined, thoughtful, intentional way and being really satisfied with the outcomes. But it, as John said, it really is a process. Um, utilizing outside advisors is critical. Some families choose to, to utilize estate planners for some of this. And then, then philanthropic advisors get called by the, the estate planners to help them ask the right kinds of questions. Um, families need to be aspirational. And goal setting is really important. Sometimes their baby steps and the larger goals come later on. They also have to be committed to education and learning from experts. And those experts might be peer groups. They might be um, academics. They might be practitioners in the field. They might actually be the people who are being served. So this willingness to reach out and, um, and experience what it is they want to do before they actually do it so that there's no unintended consequences, and that's a whole other conversation. Um, they need to be willing to take calculated risks and pivot when necessary. Um, taking risks with funding, taking risks professionally, taking risks personally is a, is a part of philanthropy, and it's part of this learning opportunity and learning agenda. And often families have multiple sources of capital, both financial and social, and they do impact investing. So. Successful families think about all of their assets. They think about their intellectual capital, their social capital, um, their, um, their capital for impact, their ability to, um, to advocate. And lastly, they need to think about evaluation and what that, how, how they know when they've been successful and what those next steps are. So the, um, the songwriter India Ari has a line, strength, courage, and wisdom. And I think families need strength, courage, and wisdom and good advice to do successful philanthropy. Well, thanks, Karen. I, I appreciate your, your, your thoughts there. I, I have to concur. I think there are some good things and best practices in, in across the things that family offices do and philanthropy certainly being one of those as well. I think too often we get sucked into that all families are different and, and unique in their own way and for, forget about some of the things that you mentioned. So I appreciate 
uh, your comments there. John, uh, you know, oftentimes we talk about large foundations, large endowments uh, and, and activities that families get involved with. But there's certainly um, a, a smaller amount of uh, and smaller foundations that many family offices will will get involved with uh, and, and certainly don't capture all the oxygen in the room. But they still maintain the ability to be quite successful and have meaningful impact for these families. Uh, how have you seen the, uh, these smaller organizations and families working with these smaller organizations in terms of your practice? Are they successful? Are there ways that they could potentially be more successful for families uh, looking to support, you know, smaller institutions? So I think that I think the first step is to just be intentional. Um, sometimes we come across these smaller foundations uh, where you know they've been up and running for a number of years, and we've done a couple of these in the last in the last year actually, where they feel like you know we're we're giving away a reasonable amount of money you know, maybe a, maybe a million, million and a half dollars a year, but we don't really feel like we're making an impact. And it's because when you, you know, sit down with them and understand what it is that they're doing, they weren't as intentional about uh, what they were trying to achieve as, as they could have been. They were, you know, particularly like if you're running a foundation through a family office environment, you know, you're, you're responsive, you're out there, you're networking, you're looking to uh, create deal flow, um, you're working with other, most likely working and networking with other family offices. Um, and if you're, if you treat your philanthropy like you're, you're uh, just looking to put your name out there or you're looking to do something that feels good to somebody that you're, that you're associated with. I mean, we've come across this, you know, a lot where, if the donors would sit down and really kind of focus on what the impact is that they want to have with their philanthropic capital and really most likely refine the number of grants that they're doing and really adopt the best practices of good philanthropy of, you know, really reviewing the organizations that they're supporting, uh, understanding what their grant means to that organization, understanding what the organization needs in total in case they have the ability to network in other donors for them. Going through the, you know, the process of getting a report and understanding, you know, what they did with the money and, and what their plans are, um, really running it, again, going back to the, to the same word, intentionally, uh, then, and to just be responsive to, requests or or just uh, you know in, in some cases frankly whims um, really really get serious and stay focused especially when you have limited resources and, and a you know a smaller amount of philanthropic capital to work with thanks John Karen what about families that are interested in supporting causes outside the United States I know you've done a lot of interesting work in that space um, I I have. Um, it may be a bigger question than that. The question may be about families that have members living in other countries or dual citizenships um, or multi multinational business operations. So there's a distinct set of IRS and Treasury Department requirements about international giving, but I, I don't know that we want to go into that right now. If families are interested, there's a lot to it. It's not, um, especially if they, they don't have um, a foothold in another country. But giving well intentionally is either about finding the right partners, and here maybe multinational large charities that have strong track records of success, or just being on the ground with local partners and being fully um, committed. 
Um, there are wonderful investment opportunities filling market demand in country, especially with ag and supply chain expertise, to go back to your impact um, investing question earlier. But the single most important thing in international giving is to learn from the communities you hope to serve. Um, you need to learn what their needs are and how to incorporate their voices into a plan because there are unintended consequences. I spent a lot of time in South Africa and a lot of time in the Middle East. And when you're driving across large, large expanses going from one small village to another small village, you see, um, you see things that have never fully been executed, like clinics that don't have doctors or, or any medication inside and no one's actually working in them, but somebody took the time to build a clinic, um, or solar panels that aren't connected to anything because the donor may have gotten frustrated. And those kinds of, those kinds of investments that aren't fully thought through at the front end that aren't fully executed go to damage the resilience of a community. And that can be worse than anything else because the great majority, I would say 90, 98% of the really under-resourced communities, communities without running water, communities without electricity that I've been in have this sense of community strength and resilience, and you don't want to take that away from someone. So there's a lot to, um, to international giving. Um, I think that at this point in time, people in the states are giving more locally in their own communities, and we may see that change over time, but, but COVID-19 has been a little bit of a reset on that front. I hope that was helpful. Oh, very much so. John, uh, you know, what about the risk management plans uh, for families uh, in their philanthropic activities? I can imagine it could be even much more complicated with uh, some of the international things that Karen talked about, but how do they, how do you work with them or how have you seen families do well to avoid, you know, less than efficient charities, you know, uh, you know, insufficiencies in due diligence or even the potential, for, you know, for fraud? Um, you know, um, good question. And, and a lot of that, again, is really just uh, rolling up your sleeves. And, and if you're not in, you know, a lot of the um, family office situations that we work for, um, the reason, you know, we're engaged is because we get in, we don't just sit with the donors and do the, the strategy and, you know, the landscape analysis on what it is that they want to support, but we also get in and do the execution. So we sort of function as like a, a you know, an outsourced foundation staff and do what a foundation staff would do, you know, with regards to um, maybe not in every case a uh, on-site site visit, but we, you know, certainly meeting with, uh, you know, the key players that are executing the programs that, that the donor intends to support, you know, reviewing, uh, you know, not just 990s, but, you know, updated budgets, uh, updated internal financials, looking for, you know, anything that might jump out. Um, and, uh, you know, in most cases, it's, it's not a problem, but, you know, there are, uh, you know, the situations that you, as you, you know, alluded to, maybe not fraud, but but you know maybe some some questionable practices and uh, again it's just a matter of uh, you know doing the due diligence to um, limit um, the risk that uh, that donors are making with their with their philanthropic dollars. Thanks, John. Karen, going back a little bit to impact investing, uh, how can families maybe use that in conjunction with uh, their philanthropic activities to? Uh, engage, uh, you know, the next gen uh, as part of it, or just uh, augment their current activities. I mean, you mentioned a couple of the, 
uh, instances of where you've seen that this has been a powerful tool. You know, as you probably talk about impact opportunities with your clients through Boston Private on a regular basis, so my guess is that you've seen an enormous amount of this also. Um, and one of the things I see is that emerging generation members are really interested in bridging that gap between the, um, the intent for the foundation endowment and the, the program side. And um, it wasn't, you know, it, it was a bunch of years ago, but I remember seeing foundation endowments that were um, heavily invested in tobacco and the foundation was really focused on lung cancer. So th there's a bridge that, um, that's been built between the, um, the investment practices of the endowments and, um, and the practices of the, the, the philanthropic, philanthropic practices of the family. So an example that I came up with was uh, not too long ago, I spoke with two cousins who came from a real estate family. One of the cousins had worked after college in the nonprofit sector and the other stayed in the family business. And they had a series of conversations about how to structure their giving. One was arguing for they needed to do it through the corporation. And they needed to think about best real estate practices that could help people who, you know, who, who needed access to real estate, um, think about food deserts in their community. And the other one wanted to set up a foundation and provide grants to organizations that were already doing this work. And I think eventually they came to develop a hybrid. But in real estate, just to go to your question um, to John just a couple of minutes ago, one of the big problems when, when people are put back in homes um, is that there are predatory lenders that come. And so families that are thinking about different vehicles to use for, for social, social good also need to think about the risks there and training that, go, that goes along with, um, with those gifts. So thinking really deeply about engagement of the community, training the community, um, opportunities to make sure that people understand what it's going to take to hold on to this property and how to think really deeply about it. Another really important um, issue of engaging the next generation in family activities is that families have a, an opportunity to talk about a discrete um, amount of capital that's, that's liquid with family members who may be inheritors, who may not be engaged in the family business and may not have the kind of financial literacy that other family members have. So there's such a great use of the opportunity to bring families together. Um, and lastly, a number of families have made commitments for investments through their endowment funds and are seeing success enough to bleed into other areas of their investments. And my guess is that, that Ed, you see some of that in your work as well. No, that's uh, uh, just very interesting <laughs> insights there, uh, Karen. You know, maybe to piggyback on that, John, what about in terms of engaging the next gen at different stages of their life, right? So you have young children, teenagers, adults, and then, you know, certainly working professional adults in the 30s and 40s and, and above. Have you seen some good practices of how families have been able to use philanthropy to engage at those different age levels? Yeah, um, actually, you know, just, just again, I'll go back to the word of, of being intentional um, about it. Uh, you know, I've actually sat through, I'll, I'll use a, a family family office, family foundation, family business meeting that I, I, I sat through where um, we, just to go back to the subject about impact investing, um, sometimes there's not a lot of give in the grant making policy, right? Um, you know, one family that we worked with 
they were just focusing on social emotional learning, big commitment to it. Um, and that's where all the grant making is going. And when you have next gen families, typically they're not living together geographically. It can be sometimes hard to draw in the next generation to an ongoing you know, family foundation that has a mission that they can't necessarily relate to. So um, uh, this one particular family, you know, you can get onto the board when you're 21. And uh, you know, during the, the family meeting, they were actually having, you know, practices with, uh, with you know, the, the next gen uh, kids who were, I think there was, there was uh, seven of them that were all under that age. Um, and they were re literally reviewing 990 and literally reviewing, um, uh, you know, uh, mission statements for some of the organizations that they were making grants to. So the sounds like an apprenticeship it, almost. Yeah, um, almost, almost. But this, this, this uh, couple of the, the trustees were getting ready to come on to the board, but again, they had a real disconnect with um, you know the grant making, which was which was not going to change. And they asked specifically, uh, you know, because they were in college, they were in finance. You know, what can we do about the corpus? We have twenty five million dollars in the foundation. How can we otherwise invest it? Aside from this, you know, very sort of traditional asset allocation, you know, sixty-five, thirty-five of you know uh, that you might typically see. How do we get into some impact investing? How do we get into some really, uh, you know, how can we use this twenty-five million dollars, you know, to make a difference? And uh, you know, the next step for them was actually to sit down with advisors like yourself and say, okay, what are, what are the options for the foundation to to change up its investment strategy, and how do we look at the investment policy statement to modify it to to get started? And and we're seeing that not just with this particular family that uh, we were working with, but with uh, with other clients as well. And and it's just you know, as Karen said, it's it's and, and as you see in your practice, it's it's almost becoming uh, it's coming into its own. So, Karen, uh, what about you? What have you seen uh, in terms of those different levels of, uh, uh, you know, ages with next gen best practices of, you know, at younger ages or maybe one families that might be more established? Yeah, thanks for asking this, um, Ed. I think this is I, I sit on the board of the Lilly Family School of Philanthropy at Indiana University, and they do a ton of research. And, and one study a couple of years ago that I read talked about the transmission of family values. Um, and noted that in the survey that the grandchildren of the um, of the wealth generators shared the same values as their parents and their grandparents, but they wanted to contextualize them differently. And I think that that's a really great place to start, understanding that there's a thread that runs through families. And the families that I've worked with, you know, we, we work on the front end to figure out what those values are and where that thread runs so that there's a baseline that everyone agrees on. And then we start talking about contextualizing for the times. Um, and I, that's, that's really important. Understanding intent and agreeing on what intent means across generations is also super important. I have one friend who sat with her preschool children and created a set of values and a family mission that they all agreed on and then she posted on the refrigerator. And every time there would be a squabble at school or between the, the siblings, she brings them over to the refrigerator and she says, which value does this problem relate to? 
And so the kids at a very early age are learning about the family values across generations because they've done it together and the cooperation there. And it's just such a wonderful way to think about, you know, using the center of your home um, and your young children. Modeling service to others is one thing that parents and, and grandparents can do. Um, I do some philanthropic asset mapping, and that includes thinking with families about what what values, what time was spent by your grandparents, what did they do. You know, my grandmother used to sew um, sew blankets and send them to um, to different organizations, and that was something that she was so proud of. She would send them overseas, and something that stayed with me my whole life. So creating a um, a dashboard for families about where they've given is often surprising to them. Um, and older emerging generation members have a greater call to action to use resources um, and have tools that Gen X and Boomers had to learn later in life. So it's really fascinating to see where they come in in terms of thinking about impact and using a suite of resources that have only been kind of marginalized or verticalized um, for previous generations. And I think that interaction is so powerful. So in my practice, developing a governance model is critical for success and identifying who is going to be at the table, what their roles are, and developing an educational model and a pipeline for emerging gen members to aspire to and to learn about um, really creates that kind of commitment. And then just really quickly, lastly, I want to mention, um, kind of piggybacking on, on what was said before, not every family needs, needs or wants to, to endow their their philanthropy into perpetuity. Um, and there's lots of different ways to do that. I have a, a range of clients where sometimes the philanthropy is funded through um, marketable securities. And, um, and then I've worked with, with families that have multiple sources of, of, um, of capital for philanthropy from trusts to donor advised funds to private foundations and understanding how families think about their Philanthropy in terms of time is a really important place to start. That's great, Karen. I, I, that dashboard idea is a really interesting one. I think that's uh, certainly an interesting way to highlight what, what people have done historically and maybe even forecast into the future. Maybe may a very useful tool for family meetings and the like. So let's close out uh, today with, you know, with a piece of advice that either of you guys would would give uh, for families that are looking to start or improve their philanthropic activities. Uh, you know, John, let's start with you. Um, so I think, you know, the answer is a little bit the same. Whether you're looking to get started or whether you're looking to improve, um, you know, reach out and. Um, have a conversation about what it is that you're trying to uh, trying to achieve. You know, in some cases we get our, you know, we, we, we come to our clients, you know, sometimes directly, but, you know, as Karen alluded to earlier, a lot of times through trust and estates attorneys, um, sometimes through accounting firms who are working on liquidity events or through wealth managers like yourself, Eddie. And, you know, the, the, the best thing that you can do is seek out advice and, Try to figure out, you know, what's in your head and how it might get implemented with, um, you know, best. And, and that may involve, you know, working with someone in the field, you know, that Karen and I work in um, to figure out how to go through all the processes that we talked about in terms of identifying a mission and, and uh, you know, your, your best practices in, in implementing your, your desire for impact with your philanthropic dollars. 
it's really um, it's really sad to see people who've been doing it for a number of years and then just realize that they're frustrated and they're maybe close to giving up. Um, and if they had just sort of sat down and been, you know, not to be redundant, but been a little bit more intentional about it in the beginning, um, or, you know, they finally decided to be a little bit more intentional about it to improve it, um, I think that's the best uh, course of action that they could take. Karen, what's the one piece of advice you'd like to leave for families? Yeah, don't go it alone. Engage a philanthropic advisor. There's um, we, there's many of us in the field, and we all do different things. So do your homework. Find an advisor that you're comfortable with, someone who's aligned with um, with the way that you, you're thinking about your philanthropy. And the platform for innovation is a solid one. It's understood that the landscape of what's being done to date, using data, engaging in peer learning, being proximate to issues, and building on family values is how to get to success. And I just want to say that this is sacred work. Engaging families in thinking about making the world a better place and being effective and, um, and having impact is one of the best things a family can do, both for itself and for the world. So thank you. So, well, thank you, Karen, and, and thank you, John. I really appreciate your, your thoughtful insights today. Uh, if you'd like to get in touch with either of our guests or, or have any questions, uh, drop us an email to familyoffice at bostonprivate.com. I'd also recommend you check out our website where you can find numerous resources, sign up for a newsletter, get this podcast, and much, much more uh, in your inbox and learn about how we help and work with Family Office. That website is... Uh, bostonprivate.com forward slash family office. And be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you prefer to listen. And thank you again to our panel and thank you all of you uh, for joining us today. Well, that's it. Uh, check back for a new podcast uh, next week and have a great week, everyone. This podcast is solely for informational purposes and is not a solicitation or an offer to buy any security or instrument or to participate in any trading strategy. The opinions expressed and information contained in this podcast are given in good faith, may be subject to change without notice, and are as of the date issued. All sourced information is believed to be reliable but has not been independently verified. This podcast discusses general market activity, industry or sector trends, or other broad-based economic, market, or political conditions and should not be construed as personalized investment advice. The following does not represent a complete analysis of every material fact with respect to the topics covered herein. All investments carry a risk of loss. Neither BPW nor its investment professionals or representatives provide tax, accounting, or legal advice. Listeners should review any planned financial transactions or arrangements that may have tax, accounting, or legal implications with their advisors. For additional information about us, please refer to our Form ADV Disclosure Brochure, which may be obtained by contacting us at 800-422-6172 or info at bostonprivate.com. Private banking and trust services are offered through Boston Private Bank and Trust Company, a Massachusetts chartered trust company. Wealth management services are offered through Boston Private Wealth LLC, an SEC-registered investment advisor and wholly-owned subsidiary of Boston Private Bank and Trust Company. Boston Private Bank is an FDIC member and equal housing lender. Investments are not FDIC-insured, not bank-guaranteed, and may lose value.